Welcome to today's Hubbard and O'Brien Economics Podcast. We're recording this one on Saturday, October 21st at 10 o'clock in the morning. Uh, I'm uh, Tony O'Brien of Lehigh University, and with me as always is Glenn Hubbard of Columbia University. How are you today, Glenn? Great. How are you, Tony? Doing really well. I thought we could start today by talking about something we've been talking about, I think, in every podcast we've had for the last a year, year and a half, because it's uh, it's front of mind for a lot of people, and that is the current state of the economy and monetary policy. So recently, we've gotten some pretty good numbers on production and employment. Retail sales this week were up more than people expected. A couple of weeks ago, when we got the, uh, the employment report, the payroll or um, establishment survey, showed a net increase in employment of about twice what the economists who'd been surveyed by the Wall Street Journal the week before had expected. On inflation, uh, of course, there are different measures, but it seems to be running maybe three, three and a half percent, maybe a little bit more, a little bit less. And then a couple of days ago, um, Fed Chair Jerome Powell gave a talk in New York, and he seemed to strongly indicate that the FOMC, the Federal Open Market Committee, was not going to increase its target for the federal funds rate any further in the two remaining meetings, uh, one at the end of October, beginning of November, then one in mid-December, and seemed to be saying that he thinks that the um, increases in the, the target rate that have already happened may be sufficient to pull the inflation rate back down to 2% without causing the economy to slip into a recession. So Glenn, what do you think? Is it, uh, are we close to the Fed taking a, a victory lap here? Well, I think the Fed seems to think that, and it's possible. When Chair Powell was here in New York to give his remarks this week, he outlined a really good description of where the economy is with some of the positive surprises, meaning that the underlying economy is more robust so that the Fed might achieve its um, desiderata, if you will, of a soft landing. That said, remember that the, um, some of the work is being done for the Fed by the bond market. At the same time, the Fed has kept short rates high. Longer term rates are quite high um, for the 10-year note and the 30-year bond, and then of course, mortgage rates. And that's doing a lot of the Fed's work for it. The challenge for the Fed is that while, as you say, inflation is sort of mid to high threes, that's not 2%. That's actually not even close uh, to 2%. And so the question is, over what period would the Fed like to reduce inflation to 2%? I think the Fed's view is that by 2025, it will be very much in that range. But that will likely require keeping rates high for a long time. So people have been focused on the rate of change, should the Fed raise rates? But I think the assumption that if the Fed stops raising rates, it begins cutting rates, that's not obvious at all, uh, given the underlying data. So uh, for all of us as individuals, it means cash might be more attractive. It means buying a house is not going to be very easy. You're buying anything uh, on credit. And so I, I think it's still difficult uh, waters for the, for the Fed. Uh, what's your view? Well, I think that you summarized some of the dangers uh, pretty well. I mean, there are a couple of points I I think might be worth making. One is 
that as we talk about in the textbook in a couple of places, and we've had some blog posts on this as well, and that is that, of course, macroeconomic data is subject to significant revisions. And particularly, if you look historically at a period when we're at a business cycle turning point, which means the expansion is about to stop and the recession is about to begin, or the other way, the recession is about to stop and expansion is about to begin, the data are subject to particularly large revisions. And uh, in, in the book, one of the episodes we talk about is the Great Recession of 2007, 2008. And given the data that the Fed was looking at in early 2008, it, things looked pretty good. You know, GDP was increasing, employment looked good, but then it turned out things were not so good. And in fact, most of that, the, those data series were revised downwards so that in fact, employment had been falling and um, things were worse than they seemed. So not to say that that's necessarily happening now, but um, as we point out in the blog post, either earlier this week or last week, if you look at the employment numbers, there have been in this year, 2023, there have been some substantial revisions, mostly downward. So it could be the case that, you know, what we're seeing of uh, increases in production and employment, things looking pretty good. We, we don't know. I mean, if we were really at a turning point now, we might not recognize it for a while. <clears throat> I suppose another thing worth mentioning is just world events. Right? We've seen this horrific um, terrorist attack by Hamas in Israel. We haven't yet seen sort of the full Israeli response. And of course, economics is not the most important aspect of, of that problem, but it could have economic repercussions depending on how it goes with oil prices and other things. And then finally, I wanted to, to ask you, you mentioned the 10-year treasury note. So, um, it has been rising. I think it closed Friday at like 4.92%. And we've gone through a long period of the treasury, 10-year treasury note being 3% or lower. And it does make you wonder, because of course, maybe it's worth worth mentioning as um, as you indicated that the interest in the 10-year treasury note doesn't just affect the expenses of the treasuries that borrows money but is used by mortgage lenders to set mortgage interest rates. And you can't really sell corporate bonds ordinarily for, for less than a 10-year treasury note because there's some default risk there. And why would, why would I give um, IBM my money uh, as an investor rather than the treasury if I get more from the treasury? So it, it made me wonder, is it possible that the treasury note being as high as it is for the first time really since about 2008 or so. Is it possible that since we've gone through this long, almost 10, 15 year period of lower treasury notes, that there are problems that aren't evident right now that financial firms, uh, investors, other people have, have built strategies and financing schemes and all those sorts of things that assume the treasury note will be 3%. And that if it's five or so and persists at five, is it possible that there are problems in the financial system that, that aren't even evident right now? It's possible the in the Task Force on Financial Stability from Brookings in Chicago that Don Cohen and I co-chaired uh, a year or so ago, we did point to that, that there could be pockets of risks in certain non-bank institutions 
from assuming rates will stay low for a long time. At the time, we didn't know rates would suddenly go up. Uh, but I do think that uh, that is a risk. Right now, there are many reasons for rates to be high. One is that the real rate may be higher than people thought. Second, that inflation is certainly higher than people thought. And third, there may be term premia, both from inflation risk and also concerns over fiscal policy and the debt and deficit. So all of those suggest that while these rates are high, at least by recent periods, uh, they may be here for quite a while. Yeah, it, it's very interesting. It made me think, and this may be a, a, a bad analogy, but it made me think back to the 2007, 2008, and actually even before that, 2006, when problems arose in the subprime mortgage market, the, the market for uh, mortgages that are granted to um, people with flawed credit histories. And as defaults rose on those, on those mortgages, people stopped paying. Um, at first, it didn't seem so bad. And I think probably it's in the Money and Banking book that we, we quote Ben Bernanke, who of course, at the time was Fed chair testifying before Congress in the spring of 2008. So in hindsight, sort of well into period when things were, 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 going, uh, were going wrong and saying that he didn't think, telling members of Congress said, well, you know, Chair Bernanke, what do you think is going to be the consequence of the defaults on these loans? And he said, well, I, I don't think, I'm paraphrasing, of course, I don't think it'll have much effect on production and employment. I'm not even sure it'll have that much of an effect, even within the mortgage market. And of course, not to beat up on Bernanke, but that turned out to be very wrong assessment of the situation. And I, I think, why was it wrong? I think partly because he didn't realize, and, and a lot of other people didn't realize, just how important subprime mortgages had become in the financial system, and that people had built strategies that required that the, uh, the mortgage-backed securities that those, um, those mortgages were in uh, continue to perform. And when they didn't, I think we were all kind of surprised that, wow, you know, this was a bigger blow to the system than we thought. Right. It just made me wonder if, you know, in the, in the complexity of the plumbing of the financial system, when you have something, then we had subprime mortgages failing in a way that hadn't been seen before. Now we see the 10-year treasury note rising to levels we haven't seen 10 to 15 years, whether there are you know, possible problems in there that we don't even realize yet that, that could happen down the line. What's quite possible, one area that I'm focused on is actually the treasury market itself, uh, because we've had big changes in the microstructure of who buys and sells and deals with treasury in the years since Dodd-Frank. So I think that is still an area to watch. The Fed had to step in, as we all remember, during the pandemic a few times uh, in the treasury market, not a market for risky debt. And there's every concern that that could happen again. Let me, uh, to, to close up this um, discussion of monetary policy, let me run a couple of scenarios by you just to see what you think the, the near future might be. So suppose it's, early next year, late January, early February. And scenario one is we see things about as they are now, namely production and employment seem to be expanding, but inflation is stuck at three, three and a half percent. Scenario two is sort of worse than that, that we see production and employment beginning to decline, you know, maybe uh, you know, 
industrial production GDP is either flat or down a bit. Unemployment is rising significantly above the unemployment rates rising above 4%. And inflation, once again, is still 3.5%. So um, Chair Powell has been adamant that they're bringing inflation down to 2%. But do you think in that scenario, if four months from now, we really haven't made much progress in bringing inflation down, do you think the Fed would really stick to its guns and, and go back to increasing the target for the federal funds rate? I think it's an excellent question, uh, Tony. The Fed has been saying, um, you know, focus on 2024, 2025. We're not saying we're going to bring this down to 2% right now in 2023. And I would expect the Fed would continue to repeat that language. Whether it's credible in financial markets would be, would be another story. Keep in mind, this is also an election year. And so there's a great deal of 2024, that is. So there's a lot of political concern on both sides uh, about what the Federal Reserve might do. So I think it will definitely be choppy waters. Your scenario one in particular looks more likely than not, given what we're seeing in the data. Yeah, it does make you wonder that uh, Chair Powell almost always in his um, talks says, well, one of the things that we benefited from is inflation expectations being anchored, is, seems to be the word that's used, at 2%, meaning that workers, firms, investors, everybody seems to think, yeah, we will get back to 2%. It does make you wonder, though, if you're at 3 3.5% for a long period of time, won't people begin to expect that? And won't that, the 3 3.5% inflation rate, end up being embedded in the economy rather than a 2% inflation rate? Exactly. That, that's the concern. That, that's certainly what I tell my dean. I want a higher raise. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, okay, well, maybe we can move on to a related point, and that is the budget deficit and what uh, is technically called federal government debt. Most people call it the national debt. And of course, what we're talking about is the situation that has been chronic for decades that Congress and the president want to spend more than they're willing to raise in taxes. So the US Treasury is given the responsibility of borrowing the difference between what we're federal government spending and what's hitting taxes. And of course it does that by issuing treasury securities, short-term treasury bills, uh, medium-term uh, treasury notes. We talked a little bit about the 10-year treasury note and long-term treasury bonds. So the total amount of those bonds that are outstanding, because of course some mature and then treasury borrows new issues new bonds in their place, that's called the federal government debt. And um, the treasury, of course, spews out a lot of data on this. And for a lot of people, certainly for me, I kind of wait till I see the take of the Congressional Budget Office, the CBO, because actually if you go to the treasury site um, and then the, the data is um, maybe more comprehensive than comprehensible, that if you want to download uh, the data, you get an enormous file with all kinds of acronyms for the variables. The CBO summarizes it, I think, in a, in a handier way. And it seems like lately, every time the CBO issues another report on the deficit and the debt, it's more bad news. So a few days ago, they issued a report on the... Um, situation in the last fiscal year, and it's worth 
I think, uh, mentioning that the uh, deficit numbers are not on the calendar year. We're used to macro data, GDP and whatever being on calendar year, January 1st to December 31st. But the federal government, like a lot of businesses, has a fiscal year that's not, that doesn't um, coincide with the, the calendar year. So the, the fiscal year starts on October 1st, continues to the following September 30th. So fiscal year 2023 ended September 30th. And so as the books have been closed, we're getting some interesting information. And a couple of days ago, the CBO said that the the deficit for fiscal year 2023, there, there's a little bit of accounting uncertainty because of um, President Biden's uh, plan to uh, cancel student debt and how that was counted one year, not the next. But basically, if you look through that, the deficit was about $2 trillion. So that would have been fiscal year um, 2023 that ended September 30th. And that's about 7.7% of GDP, which is really high for a situation that is not war, like World War I, World War II, where we borrowed an enormous amount of money, or 2021, when there were these temporary programs that involved big increases in spending. And most of those programs have, have gone away. The money has been spent. Some of them, some of the money is still being spent. But we've just never seen a budget deficit that large during a period like this one where production, employment, incomes are rising. So you would think that the deficit would have shrunk, but it increased. So how worrisome do you find what's going on with the deficit now? And the related question, of course, is the larger the deficit any one year, the larger the national debt. How worrisome is it that the deficit has increased during a period when the economy is expanding and thereby pushing the national debt up more than we would have expected? Well, I, I think it's very worrisome, uh, Tony, for all the reasons you mentioned uh, and some others. So just in this morning's Wall Street Journal, the note was that um, interest payments that the federal government made have roughly doubled uh, over the course of a year. And if you think about it, we already have a budget that I know the minds of many people in the public, they think of government as providing public goods. And there's some of that, like national defense in the budget. Most of the federal budget is in social insurance programs and interest payments. And higher interest payments make the $2 trillion number you mentioned uh, more of a harbinger uh, for what's going to happen in the future. Many defense experts uh, believe we need to be spending more on defense. If that's true, that too will put stress in the budget. The reason I think to be concerned at the moment is not just about the high levels of debt, although that does imply future taxes or lower future spending, but the fact that it will continue as we had in the previous discussion to perhaps put upward pressure on bond yields uh, with effects in the, in the real economy. Indeed, in Washington, attention to deficits tends to be correlated with that kind of market pressure uh, in, the, in the past. So I, I do think it's a, it's a concern. The issue, as we talk about in the book, is that the deficit structure, it's, as you say, it's, this is not a significant downturn. We're not in a world war. This is a structural deficit. Where does it come from? It comes from social insurance programs. 
the only way in the political economy of those programs to effectuate change would be to have very slow and gradual reductions in the growth of those programs, sort of like the Greenspan Commission did uh, in the 1983 Social Security reforms. And then perhaps in the nearer term, to lean higher on higher revenue to help uh, help balance that. That's where I think the discussion will will have to go because you know when I see congressional proposals that say just stop borrowing, what does that mean? I mean you have to change taxes, you have to change spending. But to your question, I do think this is one that's going to take off. Although as economists, you know we often think people will pay attention to the deficit and they don't. But I think real world events will force it this time. Yeah, you make a good point that um, we're in this sort of um, circular effect or feedback effect that as interest rates are high and the deficit is large, that the interest payments, as you pointed out, have been increasing. In fact, according to the CBO report, um, they made up something like, I think it was 11% of federal spending was just paying interest on the debt. And how large is that? Well, defense is only 13% of federal spending. So we're spending almost as much just paying interest on the debt as we're spending on defense. Uh, Medicare is like 14%. So we're, you know, we're, we're catching up to that. And yeah, you know, it looks like, I, I think we talked about uh, last time or a couple of times ago, and we have a, an extensive blog post on this. But if you look at the CBO's longer term forecasts, they have spending rising beyond what is um, typical. So that I think 10 years from now, uh, federal government outlays will be about 25% of GDP, which is way above what they've been typically. But revenues only rise to about 18% of GDP, which is actually also a bit above where we are. So there's a really large gap. You've got about 7.7% of um, GDP that has to be borrowed, which is exactly the amount that the Treasury had to borrow this year. And it does make you wonder, um, as you pointed out, and there's been a lot of discussion of this in Wall Street Journal and elsewhere, where are all those Treasury securities going to go? We know that certain foreign um, uh, investors, China, Japan, have kind of flatlined their purchases. It used to be the case that we sort of implicitly assumed, well, you know, treasuries are such a desirable, no risk um, investment that all around the world, people are going to want to continue buying treasuries and, you know, we can pile them up domestically. But it does make you wonder, um, you know, whether or not that supply, we've just assumed that the increasing supply of treasuries can be absorbed, but can it actually be absorbed? Is it really the case, as you pointed out, that the only way to absorb it is with a real spike in interest rates that causes people to say, oh, well, I didn't really want more treasury securities, but if I get six or 7%, but those kind of interest rates would most likely be real problem for the economy. So what do you see? Uh, maybe we can, we can close up the discussion. What would you say would be the alternatives? So if you were, um, if you were advising members of Congress or the president and, uh, and and they decided to pay attention to the deficit, which as you say, has, has not typically happened, what would you recommend that they should do to begin to get the deficit under control? Well, it, it is hard because the political process doesn't like to talk about uh, spending reductions or tax increases. 
But I think committing to a serious commission approach after the next presidential election uh, is a good thing. And then to basically begin an information process with the public that this really is, if you look at the cover of the Congressional Budget Office's long-term outlook, it is as you described, there's a, a sort of slowly rising revenue line and a hugely increasing spending line that's really driven by demographics and the social insurance programs. So just explaining that we have to make changes to those programs, they have to be gradual to give people a chance to adjust and we're going to have to raise revenue. And I think the options would be, you know, make the spending uh, growth changes phase in slowly so that they give people time and increase their political viability. But frankly, we may need to raise revenue faster than that. So I, I think the discussion will happen. Again, not because economists suddenly got persuasive, but I do fear financial market reactions will force it. Okay, Glenn. Well, that's not the cheeriest outlook, but we'll <laughs> have to follow this and uh, uh, keep in touch. Maybe we'll revisit this question um, in future podcasts, if in fact uh, we see any movement in Congress and the president to try to deal with it. Okay, we want to thank everyone for listening and remind you that um, we have a blog. It's Hubbard O'Brien Economics, all one word, dot com, HubbardO'BrienEconomics.com. And we have usually two or three posts a week in which we uh, uh, we do both macro updates, and also we have some micro things that we talk about as well. Okay, so we will see you next time uh, for the next edition of the Hubbard and O'Brien podcast.